Business Podcast. The most creative minds and innovative thinkers in football in association with SoccerX. Connecting football for 25 years. Hello and welcome to the Football Code Business Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Manby, and in this podcast, I'm talking to Katie Smith, VP of Rights Partner Relations at global sports streaming service DAZN. We delved into the company's role in women's football and particularly the Women's Champions League. DAZN acquired the global broadcast rights in a four-season deal last year in partnership with YouTube, which has made the competition live and free for fans around the world. I asked Katie about the business objectives and expectations for that deal and how it's performed live on platform and on YouTube and also the role of DAZN's social channels in engaging fans in the non-live space. And how could we talk about Women's Champions League without getting into the recent quarterfinal Classico that saw a record-breaking 91,000 fans pack out the Camp Nou? We discussed what that means for women's football as a whole and how DAZN made the most of what was a monumental event. After all, it's one thing having the live broadcast rights to the Women's Champions League, but how do you get fans to tune in? Before we start, I should remind or inform listeners that DAZN are a minority stakeholder in Football Co. And more personally, Katie and I used to work together when we were both at DAZN Group and prior to that, Perform Group. So let's get into it as I welcome Katie to the podcast. Katie, nice to see you again. Thanks, Alex. Uh, it's great to be here to talk Women's Champions League today. So, Katie, it was big news when DAZN announced the acquisition of these rights. What was the strategy behind the move and how does it fit into the company's overall broader business objectives? Okay, so let's start. Basically, DAZN look, has a long-term vision for men and women's sport to be viewed and treated equally. They're clearly at different stages of maturity. And so I think laddering up to that vision, the mission has to be to give women's sport more visibility and the global exposure that it's needed to grow. Um, sort of in addition to that, DAZN, particularly in the team that I'm in, which is the rights team, we're constantly looking for opportunities to improve the rights portfolio. We target the best sports globally and locally. And in my view, Women's Champions League is sort of without doubt the top women's club football competition in Europe. So it's almost for me, you know, why wouldn't we go for it? Um, we see it as a property with huge opportunity to increase that visibility, to grow the audience, uh, to convert that audience, and importantly, um, to fast track commercial opportunity and maturity. Um, so there, there are two kind of core reasons why women's sports properties. And then I think to, to maybe round it out or, or remind uh, listeners, uh, as you know, uh, it's, it's pretty rare that rights are traded globally. Um, and so given that we had launched our global platform in late 2020, uh, it was a huge opportunity for us to showcase that we can distribute the highest level competition through our platform to more than 200 territories, whilst simultaneously acting as a huge opportunity for UEFA to go from a very fragmented rights offering to a single global broadcaster overnight, um, a, a very much a win-win for both parties. Talk us through that a little bit, what you said about the global sports rights being rare. I mean, this is very different from entertainment or music, isn't it? Where you might buy or even create a series which then goes out and everybody can watch it anywhere. In sport, it doesn't work that way. Absolutely. Rights are carved up by the rights holder or the agency act on their behalf, uh, whether it's one market, multi-market, pan-European, pan 
uh, continental, uh, and it's very rare that it's that it's actually traded or offered globally because of the way in which they're they're looking to enhance all their monetization opportunities. There's often different tender processes, um, which yeah, which certainly are uh, fragmented, I would say, and and not globally available easily. So I totally buy it. Right, it's a it's a huge rights opportunity. There's a existing audience with massive opportunity for growth. It's premium. It's in women's. It's that's part of the design philosophy. It's global, which is rare. I get that. The th- how about the free to air decision? The decision to go in partnership with YouTube and make all of these rights available for anyone around the world free to air because that's not typical for design, right? It's not typical for design. Um, although I think we have to remind ourselves that with Women's Champions League, we are very much on a journey and it's a four year journey and of which we're at the very start of it. Um, this, the, you know, the first part of the four year term has to be to provide a platform. It has to be to, to make sure that people have the accessibility and the ease to see the content. I touched on it just then, but until our partnership with UEFA and YouTube, the rights were fragmented. They were shared between clubs and with UEFA. It made it very difficult to find the content. Um, when fans were able to watch, the quality was inconsistent. And certainly from our perspective, we don't think we can expect fans to immediately pay for content when previously they didn't know where it was or what quality it was going to be. So again, thinking about those long-term design user acquisition objectives, is it fair to say this is a new eyeballs play? I.e., to what extent is this about making... Uh, sports fans around the world aware of the zone and potentially at some point in the future paying subscribers versus augmenting the existing content portfolio that existing subscribers have. I would say it's twofold, but absolutely the the first two seasons in particular are mass awareness. We have to provide that platform to provide the property to grow before we try to commercialize it, which will come in seasons three and four. At the moment, all 64 games are live on our YouTube channel. Partnering with YouTube, the biggest search engine in the world, has its benefits in its own right for, for ease of access. But what you what you will see, or perhaps what we'll get into today, is, is that shift after season two where fewer games will be available on YouTube and every game will be available live on DAZN. And therefore drawing some of that awareness, some of that mass reach into demand and then commercialising and hitting more maturity in the latter part of our four-year term is certainly the plan. So that commercialization will be principally through paid-up subscribers to the platform rather than advertising dollars. That's correct, yeah. Great. Katie, I want to talk a little bit about audience demographics over the Mm -hmm. course of the season. Um, I'm sure you've crunched the data, and I'm interested to know, is there there any insight that you've got about the audience you've got, whether on-platform uh, on YouTube or even possibly on the DAZN social channels, are there any surprises in there, whether it's male-female split, whether it's age or, or geography or anything else? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, and I listened to your interview with Nora where you kind of got into demographic splits as well. So I know it's a bit of a hot topic uh, on the podcast and it would be great to share the notes perhaps that you, sh- you shared with her as well. I'll um, try not to um, parrot just all the, all the facts I had back then. I was just going to repeat now. So uh, maybe yeah, I, I saw that you're a bit of a stato when it, came, when it came to that. But no, like I, I think certainly from our perspective, it's a great question. We knew from research we'd done before from general TAM of general sports fans, f- football fans, it skews towards men. 
So we were expecting a male demographic split, um, not only from that broader research, but from the DAZN customers that we have and also from information provided by YouTube. It, you know, it's not an excuse. It, it shows that we have a challenge and an opportunity to tap into a female fan base. But certainly we were expecting more men. And that's what we've seen. If we take it to begin with at a macro level, firstly, millions of people from all corners of the world are watching. It's honestly been an incredible first season for us for benchmarking and for setting expectations. We had, you, you may have seen this, um, but over 14 million views for the group stages, which was then nearly matched in the quarterfinals alone, where we saw 11 million views. All of these have come in from 230 different countries and territories. Like the appetite is there. The demand is there. You make it easy for people to watch and you make it free to watch. And we've seen huge viewership. That part of our four-year strategy is absolutely working. I think clearly we then have to break that down, right? We go of those millions of views. Not surprisingly, we are seeing differences between markets, between matches. Clearly having El Clasico as a quarterfinal was major for us. It was a major moment from a viewership perspective. But I think it's also worth calling out own Germany, where we are attracting our existing customer base um, to, to tune into more content, that ranks in our highest markets for consumption because, like we've just talked about, we have a, a highly um, sort of skewed male audience. We already serve them with a, a hugely rich portfolio of content, including Bundesliga and including Men's Champions League. And so when you look at the women's competition and you see that we have Wolfsburg, we have Bayern Munich in the quarterfinals, it certainly helps to drive those numbers. We see a similar trend in Italy. We have Serie A domestically, Juventus are in the quarterfinals, and we see that that crossover exists. I think in addition to that, if we look outside of the zone for a second, and we look at our YouTube data, perhaps more broadly, what's exciting or interesting for me, having spent much of my career in Asia, is that I'm very well versed and used to seeing huge audiences, um, particularly around European soccer, or football um, for fans across Asia. So whether that's Thailand, Indonesia, Malaysia, Singapore, you know, we were seeing huge numbers uh, around content consumption, particularly where there is a huge fandom representative in those markets. And what's been really interesting for me is seeing that that transpires to the women's game. Indonesia is one of our biggest markets on YouTube for watching live content and non-live content. Clearly, timeline uh, time zones, sorry, don't. Uh, support necessarily live viewership, but we, we see huge consumption of highlights from Indonesia. And that's been really fascinating because I think perhaps naively I'd expected to see more European markets um, that have maybe more traditional ties to the clubs participating. So it's been really great to see that that transpires between men's and women's game across Asia as well. And then I think once we've broken down markets and matches, we get into who it is. And I think hopefully not hugely surprisingly, given the conversations you've had previously, but we do see a male female split. I think, you know, sharing with you that our YouTube data is approximately 80, 20 of that split may be more surprising because for me, certainly, and, and the conversations we have internally, you know, it, it dispels that notion that only women watch women's sport um, because it's, I mean, it's simply not the case, right? It's a, it's a very common misconception I would say. Yeah, it's fascinating that um, that is eighty twenty. I mean, that would that would surprise me. I'd expected, uh, you know, as Nora and I discussed, that uh, 
you know, male uh, audience still would probably outnumber female, but 80, 20, that's, um, that's amazing. And I guess that shows that you're attracting existing male football fans. Do you think that's who these people are? It's not maybe that they're, I don't know, disenfranchised from the male game or that they're particularly looking for something new. Would I be right in assuming these are existing football fans who have decided, yes, I do want to watch more football and I choose that to be the elite side of the women's game? I think so. I think that's the case. And I think there's one example perhaps where we can prove that point, which was, I think it was match day five of the Women's Champions League also clashed with match day five of the Men's Champions League from a kickoff perspective. It's one of the only two weeks where there was group stage clash. And we did see our viewership that week decrease from the previous week. And it's purely because of that competition for eyeballs in the same group of fans. So it's been, like I said, it's been really interesting for season one for us to pick out some of these insights that we can then work with UEFA on and and build into season two, three and four planning to one, avoid things like that in the future, but two, also see it as an opportunity to say, okay, we think we've captured quite a lot of the existing male football audience here, but how do we penetrate further? How do we get more into the broader audience or into the female demographic that we haven't currently done so? It's interesting because I suppose it represents a challenge and an opportunity. And men's and women's sport have, have um, you know, particularly with the growth of women's football over the years, they've found ways that I think balance the men's side and the women's game nicely in harmony, in, in sort of a, a synchronicity to it. For example, a women's football match happens directly before a men's football match at a big stadium and you encourage fans to come and watch both. It feels like women's football is getting to the stage where those sort of hand-me-downs or freebies aren't really necessary because, um, you know, they're generating these huge audiences as it stands. So I wonder whether for the health of the women's game, it's a case of still saying, okay, we'll adjust our kickoff times and dates to make sure that we're not clashing with the men's game or whether it's a case of actually getting to the point where we say, well, we want to put that game on Saturday afternoon or Wednesday evening or whenever it is, and we're going to put it then because it's the best time, regardless of what um, the men's game is doing. Yeah, I would agree. And I think what we've got to always remind ourselves is the level of maturity which the property is in. Um, So perhaps there are other competitions where they do want to have that crossover with the men's game and and have that support where you have one fixture that runs into the next. But but certainly with Women's Champions League, I would say it's um, becoming a property in its own right in that regard and definitely wants to have a schedule that suits the clubs participating, the female players participating and what they're competition is around the Women's Champions League to maximise their performance as opposed to, you know, where you say they're a hand-me-down or a, or a gimme from the, the men's club. Let's talk about El Clasico because this really was, I mean, it's hard to overstate just how monumental this was. 91,000 people in the, the Camp Nou. I know that you were there. I've seen, um, I've seen the photos on LinkedIn and, and elsewhere. At what point did you realise this was going to be so significant and how did design prepare for it i mean was it like you know the the draw came out the fixture was announced and everybody immediately started saying you know this is huge or or was it over time as the ticket sales numbers came through that you you realized this is this is huge um yeah so i was there and it was incredible the night was fundamentally you know sort of game changing for for that reason and and hats off to all those involved at the club for putting on um, such an event uh, the branding, the sort of more than empowerment message, the 91,500 really passionate fans, you know, it all contributed to such an incredible atmosphere. What I would say from a from a DAZN perspective, the way in which we build to it, yeah, I mean, we obviously look at the draw and we can understand from that point what this is going to look like. We 
actors own have an always on mentality. So when the fixtures finished at the group stages in the middle of December, we knew we had kind of a challenging three months without live content until the quarters came back in the middle of March. That doesn't mean to say we go quiet, you know, for those three months. We have to have an always on strategy to build to the next event. Now, clearly that ramps up towards the live fixture and we have a number of different ways in which we um, achieve that and build that demand as and when um, the game gets closer. So I, I don't want to use kind of too much of an, in, an industry buzzword here, Alex, but it really was from a design perspective, a, a 360 effort. You know, we we have people in comms and PR teams that, that really gave it their own push. They leverage clearly the club message around wanting to break the world record. We use that to our advantage and we work very closely with the club. Um, we had an awesome suite of non-live content just as a kind of a reminder, that's not just YouTube only. We have that across our Instagram and on our Twitter pages. Instagram in particular is a great way where we engage with the clubs and the players. We promoted the fact we had a full-scale Spanish broadcast that had Spidercam for the first time. We had a full English commentary stream. We had, for those who don't know, we have a news portal called Zone News. They were covering it throughout. We had CRM campaigns for our existing customers you couldn't go onto the platform without seeing advertising for the forthcoming fixtures. We have relationships with the likes of Amazon, with PlayStation, Google, Apple. We were securing women's Champions League placements across their portfolio, the, the, the relationship we have with them. So it really was a 360 effort to push towards that El Clasico. But like I say, that ramps up from knowing when the, the, the draw is done, what the fixtures are going to be, all the way through to on the day how we activate and how we've turned that awareness of the fixture into demand and viewership. Yeah, for those listeners who don't already follow DAZN social channels, I highly recommend doing so. There's um, there's a lot of interesting stuff there. And I think it's obvious that DAZN is a not only digital first, but digital native uh, yeah. as a company. And it feels like you know perhaps other broadcasters have thought it's live, 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 and that's what we do. And then social comes after. I think with DAZN, you can see that it's it's very integrated. Mm-hmm. Is there any particular content that worked well? You've, you've talked about a whole load of different ways that um, you could you could reach fans. Was there anything in particular that you thought worked well? You know, shoulder content, pre-live, post-live, whatever it might be. Yeah, I think, I mean, certainly there's a whole suite, as you mentioned very kindly. It's, it's an incredible um, sort of channel plan that we have across the, the different channels that we're active on. I've mentioned being always on and having that timeline. You know, we were able to particularly when we're talking about the El Clasico at Camp Nou, we're able to leverage the, the first leg um, from the Bernabeu, all of that content, the highlights that we had um, off the back of the first fixture. We also deliver what I would call engaging and educational content, uh, particularly in the, will, in the week building up to the, the, the Camp Nou event. Um, that includes interviews with players. It includes storytelling narratives and um, some of my favorite being the story so far and, and uh, which is one of our content franchises alongside get to know because building on what we've talked about already as well as increasing your audience you have to start telling the why behind all of this we have to start driving the narrative we need to tell the stories of the players so that when you're watching you care more about the outcomes because you understand their motives their motivations so bringing that sort of storytelling to life, turning some of those names into household names is really important for us, as well as 
just um, making sure that we've got numbers. So we, we have all of that educational and engaging content. And then, like I say, during the 12 hours or six hours, three hours before the game, I would say we turn into more of a demand generation content. That's anything from the bus arriving, the atmosphere, anything behind the scenes, all the way through to pitch side coverage. So I would, I would classify kind of all of that in shoulder content. I think kind of final couple of thoughts on that, because I honestly could talk about the, the content strategy for a long time, but final couple of thoughts on that. Um, we have to leverage the fact that Barcelona have got Alexia Pateas, right? It, it goes without saying, but people want to watch content around the best players in the world. So the shoulder content that we deliver around her, just it performs incredibly. And there was a really, personally for me, special piece of content around that, that was the promo for the game, all around historical match footage of El Clasico's played by the men's teams previously at Camp Nou and very emotional, emotive piece from Pateas talking about how this will be her first time and, uh, you know, how overwhelmed she is. And I think that's really special because it captures something that is quite rare in football now. And I think thinking about post-match and shoulder content that therefore drives the conversation into the next week and helps the club to sell out again for the Wolfsburg semi-final is capturing those moments that that you can do so in the women's game and perhaps you can't in the men's game. Things like Alexia on the drums, the celebrations of the crowds, the highlights we were able to to pull together short form, longer form. We did spider cam highlights. You know, we really went all in on what that day was, what the moment was, the number of the record-breaking attendance being flashed on the screens, the reaction, the songs, you know, everything about that day turned into then post-match content, which continues the conversation longer. And I think, you know, all of it together from always on, build up, education and, and engage, demand generation, and then follow through, all of it was just incredible and, and certainly contributed to that, that momentous uh, week in women's football. I think it's interesting because it's got to the point whereby I think a while ago we would talk about women's football as something that we would tell stories because stories needed to be told about of, of triumph against adversity and you know being an underdog and working three jobs a week you know and then all turning up and training in your spare time and I feel like women's football has sort of got beyond that you know you hear these stories around the Olympics and they're heartwarming and they're you know, they feel good and they're amazing stories which deserve to be told. It feels like, as you say, women's football has got to the point where Alexia Puteas or other, you know, major stars of the game are absolutely icons in their own right. And we want to hear about them, not because they work three jobs and, you know, then, you know, come home and then go to training or whatever it might be, but because they are massive superstars. And yet there is still this uh, sense that you can get more access to them. I mean, we find that with Goal 50 and with other awards that we do and other interviews and women's football coverage that we make, it is easier to get content and interviews and, and talk to uh, these superstars. So it feels like it's a kind of balance in between everybody still wants the women's game to grow and there's a collective feeling that all together we can make this happen, but it's no longer the sort of, oh, well, we, we desperately need to you know help out. So uh, you know, when I think about the state that women's football is is in right now, that's how I feel. And you're right about all the content that went out there. I felt like I saw more content, more shoulder content, and um, than I'd seen for any women's game previously. And in fact, we were there. Football Cove obviously partnered with DAZN 
our new women's brand Indivisa was there and we were right in the action filming um, Putesh with the drum and you kind of think that is an iconic moment that people will remember for years and years. I want to talk, Katie, about DAZN and going back to one of your comments at the start, which was about why DAZN is interested in women's sport. And, and I'm sure clearly DAZN is very proud of what they're doing uh, in women's sport and particularly in women's football with this Champions League deal. To what extent is that about doing it because it's the right thing and doing it to help position the company globally as an innovative, forward-thinking broadcaster versus sound business sense with key long-term economic objectives? Yeah, that's a great question. I would probably challenge you slightly and say DAZN is an innovative, forward-thinking company. So in my view, we didn't acquire Women's Champions League for positioning because we're already there. What I think is fair to say is that we've seen in our coverage gap report, I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, but we, we've done a report with the female quotient and I can certainly share it with you, but we've seen within that report that the entire industry needs collectively to do better when it comes to frequency, when it comes to quality of coverage. That includes all varieties, mainstream broadcast, news media like yourselves with, with Goal and with Indivisa, social content, you know, the list goes on. And we've certainly seen it as a responsibility and as an opportunity as a global broadcaster to invest in women's sport and to grow women's sports properties. So yeah, it's almost a yes and no on that one. The second part was around revenue, right? So yes, DAZN makes commercially sensible investments. I would be lying if I said we didn't have a revenue target associated to this property. What I would say in addition to that, though, is that we're confident in the strategy that we have. If we do Women's Champions League right, which I would say that we are to date, the commercial potential is there. We are going in the right direction. Season one, we have a global partner in Adidas. The rest of our revenue looks to, you know, to advertising around our YouTube relationship. That will change. And, and like we've mentioned before, there will be fewer live games on YouTube and there will be more onus and emphasis on fans coming to DAZN to be the sole place you can watch all games live. And we're certainly timing it, in my view, in a very savvy way, given that the Women's Euros will be uh, this summer at the end of season one. We'll then move into the Women's World Cup at the end of season two. And so when that interest is at its highest and the mass awareness we feel like we have covered, we will then transition that into demand and into commercial maturity in the form of subscriptions onto DAZN. Yeah, I take your point absolutely about um, the innovative uh, perception that people have of DAZN. I suppose maybe my point there would be thinking more globally. Like if you go to Germany, where DAZN is an established broadcaster with uh, a great number of subscribers and I'm sure huge awareness amongst the public, absolutely it will be you know positioned in that way. I suppose in other markets where DAZN has not existed as a broadcaster previously, this is maybe an opportunity to say, we're here, come watch us on YouTube. And by the way, you know, this is what we're all about. Mm. Uh, and then from the revenue point of view, yeah, absolutely. That that makes sense. How do you think things are tracking? Ver well, how do you think, how do you know things are tracking versus expectations? Obviously, you've talked about this plan of everything live on YouTube, and then at some point, not all live on YouTube. Presumably, there were some expectations around audience figures, which would dictate whether that was the strategy that you would end up uh, pursuing? Yeah, that's, that's another great question. 
And it was really difficult, in all honesty, because what we were doing was so new. We were centralising the rights for the first time and we were partnering with YouTube and neither of which had been done previously. So setting those expectations was really difficult. And we always knew season one was going to be the benchmarking season. So what I, you know, what I can say is that we've seen that demand we knew was there. We've increased that visibility. We've provided the platform. Viewership growth week on week is really exciting. Subscription numbers on the YouTube channel, which I think sit now at, I think, 270K. Um, that's higher than the YouTube team predicted by this part of the season. And our core to zone markets particularly those I've mentioned in, in Europe, they're constantly impressed by that crossover engagement we get from Women's Champions League and other football properties. So all of those metrics together, what we can see is that basically we've set a really high bar for our performance expectations in season two, because it's you know it, it has been, I would say, surpassed expectations already for season one. Katie, it's been brilliant talking to you about all things Women's Champions League and the journey you're on with the zone. Thank you very much for your time. No problem, Alex. Thanks for having me. For more podcasts like this, please make sure you're subscribed to this channel wherever you listen to your podcasts or visit footballco.com for the archives. Thanks very much. All the best. The Football Co. Business Podcast. The most creative minds and innovative thinkers in football in association with Soccer X. Connecting football for 25 years.